Let me turn you back to Exodus chapter 12, again looking at the Passover this morning, and particulars about that. Let's unite our hearts together as we come even to the preaching of God's precious word. Father in heaven, again, we thank the Lord for help given already. We bless the Lord for being able to uh, sing from our heart, offer uh, the praise of our soul. We praise the Lord. We're able to sing about the blood. And oh God, we thank the Lord uh, for the precious shed blood of the Lamb of God. And Lord, we pray that thou might teach us, give us the teachable spirit, Lord. Oh God, we pray, Lord, for every heart that would not be a a drab or a drudgery to be here. But, O oh God, that I might teach us, that I might give us a little word in season. I pray, Lord, that I would minister to each and every heart, whether young or old, whether saved or unseen. O oh God, we pray that I might speak above the voice of the preacher. To that end, I pray that I would fill us with thy spirit, and I would give us words from thyself that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words. Bring us into this very passage and do us good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we have noted already this passage, this chapter, that details, of course, the instituting of the Passover, supplies us with a most graphic portrayal of the cross work of Christ. I believe it's to be a chapter in that sense above any other in the Old Testament. Not least in how often the term lamb is applied after this as one of the titles given to the Savior himself. Now, there are of course many pictures of the sacrifice of Christ in the Old Testament, but none so complete maybe as this 12th chapter of Exodus. The Passover sets forth both the Godward and the manward side of the work of atonement. And when the cross is preached, you know, so often the Godward side is forgotten about. But here, the Passover brings us to our attention both these aspects. In other words, it shows us that he satisfied, the Lamb satisfied the demands of God's justice, but it also was the sinner's substitute. And as we looked last time at the slain of the lamb, there had to be the lamb killed for every household. And that shows us that Godward side. And men and women, isn't the accuracy of the scriptures and the detail given here something that is most amazing? I want you just to think and consider this. Of the thousands of the lambs that have been killed on that 14th night of that month. And the Lord said, it will be the beginning of months unto you. Here will be the first month of the new year. And on the 14th night, thousands of lambs had to be killed. But yet even though this memorable night was marked by the slain of those thousands of lambs, the Lord here deliberately uses the singular number when he instructs Moses about it. Did you see that? In the words of verse 6, it says, And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day, and ye shall kill it in the evening. It's not them. It's it. And you will not find the plural used right throughout this 12th chapter 
of Exodus. Never does the Lord once use lambs. Why? Because there's only one that's before God's mind, and that's the Lamb of Calvary. There's only one Savior. There's not many. And part of that Godward side was the shedding of the precious blood. And its importance is here for all of us to see. It's a truth that cannot be passed over lightly. We'll again notice some things about it. But there's also the man we're saying, the lamb dying in the place of the firstborn. But also what the home and the house had to do with the lamb that had been slain. And so men and women, I want to take you again into this Passover night. I want to bring you into these verses. Uh, because I believe there's much for us to feast upon. Just as there was for those Israelite houses on that never-to-be-forgotten night. Want you notice firstly here the power of the blood. The shed blood is absolutely essential for the soul's salvation. Where there's no shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no pardon for sin. You know, some people strangely don't like this blood theology. And some people will speak of it in derogatory terms as slaughterhouse religion. I'm sure you've heard that before. If the blood had not been shed, if the blood had not been applied to those Israelite homes, then there would have been a slaughter in every house, that of the firstborn. It is the precious blood. Hebrews 9. Not of goats, nor of calves, but of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves from spiritual slaughter and divine judgment. The blood. What think ye of the blood tonight, today? Think of where the blood had to be applied. You look at it with me at verse 7. They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two doorposts, on the upper part post, post of, the door, of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Turn over to verse 22. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel on the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. I wonder, as you think of where the blood had to be applied, do those points not again direct us to the cross. It was to be put on the lintel of the home. That is the upper part, the upper post of the door. And the building contractors, the builders today will speak yet of the lintels. There's a lintel put in and if you're putting a few windows in or a door, you had to put the lintel in. And the lintel is the upper part of the door. And does it not cause us to think of the blood that poured forth from the thorn-crowned brow of the Savior while he hung there on that middle tree? And then the blood was to be put also in the side posts. And the blood was to flow from the riven hands of Christ as they lifted him and as they kneeled him to the cross. And ordinarily, most then will make the point, that is, commentators as I refer to, even preachers, most will make the point that the threshold is not mentioned. Threshold is what you walk over when you go into your home. But I, I bring this thought to you, a thought that I picked up from A.W. Pink. And he brought out the truth that the word in verse 22 that we read just a little moment ago, the word for basin, you shall take the bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. That word, in fact, is an old Egyptian word for threshold. 
And that is why the threshold isn't mentioned. Because the thought here is, and Pink brings it out, is that the lamb was slain at the threshold. And so the blood would already have been upon the threshold. And of course, we know the clear instruction of the Lord was given that they weren't to trample on the threshold because we read at the end of verse 22 and it says, And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. I put that to you. In fact, the Septuagint, which is a a translation of the Scriptures, it has that word as along the door. I throw it out. I can't be dogmatic, but there is a thought that we must consider because if you think of the cross, not only do we see the blood that poured forth from the riven brow of the Savior and his hands, but of course his feet were also uh, nailed to the tree and the blood poured forth from them as well. Consider how the blood was to be applied. We read it in verse 22 with a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop was a very small plant. It was a plant that had hairy leaves, as we would say maybe today. It acted as a good applicator. It was spoken of in connection with some offerings. But you know, it was also spoken of by David in his repentance psalm. Psalm 51 if you care to turn over to it. And here is where he repents of his sin with Bathsheba that he had sought to hide. And verse 7 he says, Purge me with hyssop. In other words, the application of the blood. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. With the hyssop being a very small plant, insignificant, then surely the thought is, and it might suggest to us humility, and with it used to apply the blood, that speaks to us of faith. And you bring those two thoughts together, men and women, and you see what is needed in salvation. In humility, we recognize that we're a sinner. We recognize our sinfulness. And by faith, we identify with God's Lamb and the cleansing that's needed from our sin. As the Israelite would have sprinkled the blood in the home that night, It reminds us that how God works faith in the heart of the repentant sinner. It's not something that we can work up. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God worked in the hearts of the Israelite even to apply the blood to their home. And so he works faith in the heart of the sinner to personally accept Christ as our Savior. And it leads surely for us to think of the power of the blood. It had the power to protect the firstborn from the death angel. It had the power to stop the judgment of God. But to go a little further, just pick up on some of the details that are given by way of blessing to the Israelite in Egypt at that time. The blood gives life. Can I read to you Leviticus chapter 17? A very... Uh, important verse in the book of Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 and it says this for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is the blood that make an atonement for the soul now how vital the blood is physically how important the blood is to the human body if there's something wrong with your blood There's an illness that will be in your body. 
That's why when you go to the doctor, there's always blood tests and hospital and A&E and all of that. They tell a lot by the blood. The blood's not right, then the body will suffer illness. And men and women, you take that thought into the spiritual. The truth here emphasizes that the blood gives us new life spiritually. When we are saved, we're given new life. That is only possible by means of the atoning blood of the Lamb. As Israel's firstborn was given life by the blood of the Lamb, so we have life because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood also gives us redemption. We read, of course, Revelation chapter 5, and has redeemed us to God by thy blood. What we're considering really here from this chapter onward is the redemption of Israel from out of Egypt. And to redeem is, in least part in one means, to buy, to purchase, to buy back. It cost the greatest price to purchase our redemption. Not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter, in his little epistles, he speaks about the precious blood of Christ. It's the blood that provides our justification. Romans chapter 5, and the words of verse 9, says this, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath, through him. Israel were saved from divine wrath. So is the soul that turns to Christ. You know, justification or justified is a legal term. It really brings us into the courtroom. And the meaning is, God declares the sinner who's standing in the dock as guilty, God declares that sinner as righteous in his sight, just as if he had never sinned. And that's what happens when a boy or girl, when a man or woman comes to Christ for salvation, God justifies us. If we're not righteous, then we won't be in heaven. But it is the blood of Christ that makes us righteous. It's the blood that gives us a cleansing. Cleansing that we need from our sin. Of course, we have that Verse 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see the power of the blood? Israel were a defiled people. Before they could be brought out of Egypt, they must be in contact with the blood. They must shelter beneath the blood. And so it is with the soul. In this world of sin, we're defiled every day. But the blood of God's dear Son, it cleanses us. It keeps on cleansing from all sin for the child of God. That's why, believer, that you ought to keep the short accounts with God. Those things that you've done wrong, word, thought, and deed every day, that you get them under the blood, that there's no miscommunication with heaven, there's no blockage, there's no hindrance to your prayers been offered and answered. The blood gives us boldness. We read there in Hebrews chapter 10, you see, these are all the blessings through the blood. Hebrews 10, in the words of verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. Boldness means confidence, assurance. 
And the Israelite had the confidence, they had the assurance of heart and of mind that they were safe as the blood of the Lamb had been applied to their home. And we have boldness, men and women, to be able to come before God in prayer because the blood has been shed. The veil has been rent in the temple from top to bottom. We come because the blood is on the mercy seat. It is also the blood that gives us peace. Colossians chapter 1, in the words of verse 20, would bring it out to us, where it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, gives us peace with God. Peace in our hearts, that all is well with our soul, that our sins have been pardoned and washed away. It gives us the assurance of one day of being in heaven. It's something that the Egyptian did not have on that particular night of the Passover, that 14th of the month. In fact, they were the very opposite because we read that there was great despair. You, you, you look at verse 30. We didn't read it earlier on, but you look at and read it with me now. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there's not a house where there was not one dead. There's great despair. There's a great cry. And here's the thing. Pharaoh was warned. He was warned of the sorrow that would come upon a people if he refused to let Israel go. Let me remind you of that. You'll find it in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. Moses warned them. In chapter 12, now verse 30, that word's coming to pass. There was a great cry. There wasn't a house. There wasn't a firstborn killed. And the sinner is warned concerning the sorrow that will come upon them who reject Christ as Savior. Matthew 24, verse 51 says this, And shall cut him asunder and appoint him as portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 25, verse 30, Just in case you missed it, And cast thee the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's repeated. Because it's a repeated warning. And you know physically it's not a nice thing to gnash your teeth. And you've got to go to the dentist and all of that, the pain, the suffering. Here's eternal sorrow, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. It will be a sorrow that will never be experienced before nor after. What wise is the soul, therefore, that will flee to Christ, that will know the peace of God and the peace of heart and of soul and of mind through the blood of the Lamb? Israel knew peace because they were depending on the blood. What about you this morning? What think ye of the blood? I've asked it again. You know, there's something else I want you to see here. The participating of the Lamb. On this momentous night, not only was the Lamb to be killed, but the flesh was also to be eaten. This was God's provision for those inside of the home. 
Just as much as the blood secured protection from the judgment outside of the home. There's a meal spoken about here. Read with me verse 8. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. They would eat the flesh in that night. While the blood saved, the body of the Lamb was their strength. The body of the Lamb was needful for the journey, and He also provides strength for the service and for the believer's walk on a daily basis. The blood was the means of salvation. The Lamb, participating of the Lamb, provided that strength needed for the journey. The Apostle Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The Savior himself is also speaking of this. I would that you would come and look at this. You'll find it in John chapter 6. I have good reason to just spend a moment on this as I'll bring out to you. John chapter 6 verse 48. He says, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is a bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And there the Lord is speaking of the same thought, the same truth. Now, I brought you to that passage because that is a passage which the Roman Catholic Church has misinterpreted for their own ends. And it is a passage where they will go to... to, uh, bolster transubstantiation. What that big, sim- big word simply means is where the priest holds up the wafer, he says, this is the body, the blood, the sinews of Christ. And those who take Mass are taking that wafer <coughs> under the pretense that it is some, some miraculous manner it has become the life and body of the soul of the Savior. But men and women, John chapter 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is not even mentioned in it. John chapter 6 is nothing to do with that context. In fact, if you read with me verse 63, you will see that the Lord's not speaking literally. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He didn't beckon them to literally take his body and to take his blood. It's nothing to do, the context is not to do with the Lord's Supper or the remembrance of his death. But of course the Church of Rome uses that to their own end. And that's why when they're going into the Mass house they will be asked, are you taking? Are you taking? 
because they don't want to have any wafers left over that have already, in their terms, been consecrated and become the body and blood of Christ. What the Savior is speaking about here is about the believer feasting on the Lord, partaking of His Word, feeding our souls. And He says, I am the bread of life. Then you want to notice here, there's the fire mentioned, not only the meal, but there's the fire. And it says it has to be roasted with fire. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire. Speaks of judgment. A lost eternity for the sinner will be eternal fire, eternal judgment. And the judgment of Christ that Christ would suffer and dine in our guilty room instead. That's where this thought brings us. Because on the cross he cried, I thirst. wasn't merely a physical thirst, but rather it indicates to us the suffering that the Savior endured, the divine judgment of God against our sin. Christ must not only die for his people, but he must pass under and through the judgment of of God. And you know there's a question that is put and I put it to you from Lamentations verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 12. It says is it nothing to you all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. And you know that verse just takes me to the cross. And it was a very public crucifixion, very public place. They that pass by, they wag their heads at him. Is it nothing to all ye that pass by? Will that question be addressed to your heart today? You think nothing of the sorrow that the Lord was to endure there at Calvary, of the fire of God's wrath that fell upon him. You see, the lamb had to be partaken and it had to be roasted with fire. There's a note also about the partaking of that lamb in verse 8 because it says they shall eat the flesh and that night roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. It was to be eaten with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Now leaven, of course, in the scriptures reminds us of sin, pollution, evil. Unless we're separate, unless we're that unleavened bread, if you like, from what divine holiness abhors, then we cannot expect to feast upon the Lord. Sin will take away your taste for the Savior. You often hear that sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And maybe I'm preaching to a believer, and you've got away, and you've lost your taste. It's because of sin. It'll take away our fellowship with him as well. It's only as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that we have fellowship one with another. The bitter herbs carry a very similar thought. It speaks of remorse and hatred of sin. We cannot have fellowship with the sufferings that that Paul desired in Philippians chapter 3 without remembering what caused the sufferings. What caused the sufferings of Christ on the cross was our sin. And the remembrance of those sins produces that remorseful spirit. It was to be eaten with unleavened bread and with the bitter herbs. I wonder how are we feasting on the Lord? 
You know, from a physical, a very physical illustration, a human perspective, if you indulge in the junk food, then the proper meal will be so uninviting. That's why the boys and girls, we discourage them from going to the junk food in the afternoon, in the morning or whatever. It'll take them away from the main meal. The main meal will not be so inviting at all. The snacks take away the appetite for that which the body really needs. And so it is spiritually. There's plenty of junk food out there. There's plenty of junk food out in the world. There's plenty of junk food to be found even in religious circles. And if we're always partaking of the dainties, then we're not feasting on Christ. You know what becomes? We become anemic Christians. We don't mature as believers. We don't mature under the meat. We're still in the milk. You consider that there were also those things that were forbidden with regarding to partaking of the lamb. Look at the words of verse 9. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. Two things. Raw means unprepared. I like a good steak now and again, but I don't like it raw. Some people like the blood hanging out of it, but I don't. Raw means unprepared. And you know there's a solemn illustration, a solemn truth there for us. Time had to be taken to properly partake of that meal. And you want to learn more about Christ as your Savior, then listen to me. There's no substitute for spending time in this book with the Lord before Him in prayer. There's no substitute. There's no quick answer. Got to spend time. Want to get to know somebody? You spend time with them. Wasn't to be sodden at all with water. Verse 9, boiling things takes away vital nutrients. Watering down the word of God takes away. It takes away the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. It takes away the sinlessness of the Savior. It takes away his bodily resurrection and so many other truths. Watering down the message makes less of Christ. It makes less of sin. And inevitably it leads to the fires of judgment being put out. And that's why in so many places today you'll never hear hell mentioned. Never preached upon. Taken away from the word. I want you to see here also that there was to be nothing of it was to remain. Verse 10, ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. That which remains of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. It prevented superstition with some part of it left over. And you know the people were so easy given to superstition. Remember Nehushtan was an idol that was raised. There's no part of the lamb that was to be left. Also It prevented the lamb from putrefying. The lamb was given the utmost respect. And so must Christ in her teaching and in her attitudes. Young person, man or woman, have always the highest view of Christ as you come and as you walk your life. 
Then consider the manner in which they were to participate. You'll notice that in verse 11. Thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. There's a note there about the dress. It's a wee bit unfamiliar to us today because in the Eastern setting, long flowing garments, it helped with the heat, of course, and all of that, but they wore a big belt. And here the instruction was that they were to tuck up their dress, they were to tuck up their garments into the loins, into the belt, so that they wouldn't get in the way. Loose apparel, you see, made it difficult for a person to move quickly. And so the instruction was that ye shall have your loins girded. means the garment was tucked in. The message was that they were to leave in haste and that reflected in the manner of their dress. Now today, child of God, our faith in Christ ought to be reflected in the manner of our dress in the manner of our apparel. And I'm not pointing the finger only to the ladies here. I'm also pointing the finger to each one of the men. Because society has it that we dress down now. And you just drive past some of the other places of worship and there's a dressing down. I'm talking about the men here. But you see, our dress, our garment, when you leave the home on the Sabbath day and you come to the house of God, it's a testimony. It's a testimony before an ungodly world that looks on. Are we modestly dressed? Are we dressed for coming to the house of God? There we thought there, take it with you. What about the shoes? The shoes were to be on their feet. Again, the state of readiness for the journey that was before them with no shoes on their feet then. They wouldn't be able to go very far at God's bidding and when the call came. And we need also to be in the state of readiness to serve the Lord and to do battle. You remember the the armor of God is spoken about in Ephesians chapter 6. You listen to verse 15. It says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And there was a staff to be in their hand, a sign and a symbol of pilgrimage. They were strangers in a strange land. And when the summons came to leave, the Israelites would not have time to look around for their staff. It was to be in their hand. It speaks to us of dedication, of willingness to obey. Note the words at the end of verse 11, Ye shall eat it in haste. The Passover was to be eaten in a posture of being ready to leave. They tarried at the mealtime. And you go on holidays to any of those eastern countries and they take an age. We, we probably eat our food too quickly anyway. But they take long at the meal table. But here's a, an occasion where the meal was to be eaten in haste. And it was to be eaten in haste because if they tarried, then they wouldn't be able to finish it before the summons came, and so they wouldn't have the strength for the journey. Does it not speak to us a little of procrastination? That's a big word. It simply means putting off, hesitating. And there are those who are procrastinating where their soul's salvation is concerned. They put off onto another day what they know they should do now. They're people of God and they're procrastinating and knowing what the Lord has told them to do by way of duty or a work. 
Men and women, the manner of their partaking of the lamb surely emphasizes to us the need to be ready. They need to be ready when the summons comes to leave and to hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's so many lessons for us there. And it's all about partaking of the Lamb. It's just a final note as I close. I want you to see the practice here of the believer. It's interesting to trace the keeping of the feast for Israel after this. Verse 14 of the uh, verse that we read gives us the importance of it. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. But consider that in the Scriptures, there's only seven times the Passover is recorded from here. Only seven times. Here's the first one. The second time was in the wilderness. The third time was when they arrived in Cana. You read that in Joshua chapter 5. The fourth Passover was in the days of Hezekiah. The sixth one, uh, fifth one was under Josiah. The sixth one was after they returned out of their captivity. And the final one brings in the New Testament. And that was when the Savior and his disciples celebrated the Passover feast before the instituting of the Lord's table. In that last Passover, you see, the true lamb is seen. That is prefigured by all the thousands of Paschal lambs beforehand. But if I can finish with a very practical note about the feast of unleavened bread. We've read these verses, you may have considered, as we read verse 17 to 20, that, that's a bit out of place. That's not about the, the, the night of the Passover. It's a, a section nearly of itself. Ye shall, verse 17, observe the feast of unleavened bread. It's not out of place. We've considered already that leaven speaks of sin, and from these verses we learn the feast was to follow that of the Passover. So they kept the Passover and then followed this seven-day feast of unleavened bread. The interpretation is applied for us when we read of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 7 and 8 will suffice. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, even as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This feast was to last the course of a week, and it may cause us to consider the life and the conduct of the church. The church collectively, the believer individually, are called to walk in paths of practical holiness. During our days here on earth. And this is because of what Christ has accomplished for us as his Passover. Or our Passover, I should say. As a direct result of being washed in the blood. A direct result of being saved and redeemed out of the Egypt of this world. Having fellowship with the Lamb. It follows just as the feast of unleavened bread was to follow the Passover night. We are to be holy as he is holy. The Israelite did not put away the leaven in order to be saved, but because he was saved.
See that? The lamb was slain. The blood was applied. The death angel came. They were preserved and protected. And as a result of that, then they kept the unleavened, feast of unleavened bread. But if he failed to put away the leaven from the house, it didn't raise the question of security through the blood. It did raise the question of fellowship with the rest of the assembly and the cutting off of the individual from that congregation in verse 19 is akin to the discipline that any member may endure in the body of the church. For indulging in that which is contrary to the holiness and purity of Christ and his testimony is cause for discipline. God cannot tolerate sin. The church can't tolerate sin either. It is our desire, it ought to be every one of God's people's desire that we might have that testimony of the Lord's presence among us. God will not be where there's sin, men and women. But we would desire that the Lord's presence is among us. We desire, do we not, that sweet communion with the Lord. And thus it behoves us to continually battle against the flesh and the devil and the world and to restore the one who has fallen in the spirit of meekness and to bear one another's burdens. For there but for the grace of God go any one of us. Men and women, we take heed to these teachings about the loins being girded, about the shoes and the feet, about the staff in the hand. Why? Well, because of Christ. Not because of a free Presbyterian minister and what he's preached to you. Not because of a denomination that is separated, but because of Christ. And he says, Be ye holy, as I am holy. That means we need the help of God every day. May the Lord enable us to do those things in these days for his glory's sake. And that the ungodly looking on will be able to testify, you know, the Lord's there among them. The Lord's in that church. That's the testimony I desire for the church here in the Tondergate Road. that the Lord will be able to work amongst us and take his rightful place and he will be glorified. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning for his own name's sake.